Sensible Foodie, a podcast by a foodie dietitian just trying to make sense of the world. I'm your host, Kate Park. The thing I love most about this podcast is getting to meet inspiring and unique people in the food, nutrition, and culinary arts world. Today's guest is no exception. If you're a fan of second chances, unique origin stories, and making the world a better place, you are going to love today's guest. I truly feel blessed to get a chance to talk with her about her life, business, so let's not waste any time and jump right in. Emily is the founder and creative director of Comeback Snacks, formerly Cons and Kernels, a gourmet popcorn company that got its start in federal prison. Not a lot of snack companies can claim such colorful roots, but I'm telling you the tale that led to Comeback Snacks is an inspiring one. Now, rather than sharing Emily's journey, I'm going to let her do that for you, but I want you to know Emily is a renowned public speaker, social entrepreneur, consultant, and is leading the way by supporting others in their life after prison so that they can also have a second chance, all while serving up delicious popcorn flavors so tasty they might as well be criminal. Everyone, please welcome Emily O'Brien. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here, Emily. (laughs) Uh, Would you mind just kind of sharing a little bit of the journey that's led to this company? Because again, I think a lot of people read the packaging and they go, where is this coming from? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So I guess I kind of want to go back to before it started and that was what led me to incarceration. Um, So it was 2014. No, sorry. Yeah, 2013, 2014. I was running my own company in Toronto. Um, at the same time, my family was going through like a pretty hor- like horrific breakup, and it was really hard on me. But I just found it very easy to hide that grief um, through substances. And my work, um, it was a social media company, so I was able to kind of what I would do is I'd go to events and basically take footage for people. You know how social media companies do, right? Like you capture content and then you post it for them. Mm-hmm. And so I was actually pretty. It was very easy for me to also hide my consumption through my work because alcohol is not something that's really shamed upon. Like it was, it was very easy. Um, and then also cocaine came into the picture, which also was pretty prevalent. And I mean, it's not like it's sneaking into a back alley to do it. You know, it was, it was just kind of part of it. Um, it wasn't like looked down upon, but, uh, it wasn't looked down upon. It wasn't looked up upon, but it was just there. It and, was part of the environment. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I started to do that and, you know, I've always been a casual, I don't want to say casual drinker, but like I've always kind of drank since like high school on and off throughout university, part of culture there. So I don't want to say, oh, it'll, this all just started when I was 25. Like I definitely had my fair share of consumption and issues along with that. Um, you know, definitely just ruined a couple family events with it and everything like that. But, um, <laughs> anyway, so I went back. Uh, so back to 2014, 2015, I met someone through my work who was actually sober um, and, you know, I, I knew that I was at a point where it wasn't serving me well, but I wasn't about to stop and I didn't want to stop, but I met him and he was really supportive of the fact that I wanted to try and, you know, was encouraging me that, you know, he'd kind of gone through something similar and we developed a pretty close relationship. Um, and we also had a business relationship. So he would, I, he would pay my company to do things for his, for his business and then there were some sketchy things that started to happen. You know, his checks started bouncing. Um, I actually purchased... So, so his business was like buying and selling used cars. And I actually purchased a car through his business. And I never even got the car. And there always oh. just seemed to be like some sort of thing going on with it. 
But again, I kind of saw that knight in shining armor, like, you know, trying to help me get sober. So I just kind of... You found a way to justify it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, so like one day he comes over to my apartment and is like, I really want to go on a trip with you. Um, do you want to go? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like, that would be awesome. It's not like I haven't traveled with people before. You know, I've known him for eight or nine months now. And again, so I, I, was, I thought this could be a fun way for me to go on a trip and actually abstain from alcohol. Mm-hmm. And it's because I, normally I'd go on a trip and be drunk every day, right? So like at the resorts and all that stuff. Um, but I was like, no, I kind of would like to go on a trip to actually get away from all those things. And so he he's uh, he asked me to send him his my passport information. So I would text him the passport information. And then three days into this trip, we were going to somewhere called St. Lucia. Three days into this trip, the first three days are all fun, normal. And he's actually drinking on this trip, which is weird. Oh, yeah. For someone that had stopped. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Red flag. Yeah. Yeah. But there I was. I was already in St. Lucia. Um, mm. And on the third day, he, um, I was about to go down to the pool. And on the third day, he's like, Emily, we're not, we're not going down to the pool today. We're actually here to work. And it's not all about fun and games. And so that's when I found out that he had actually given my passport identity to drug cartel people down there. Because he owed, owed some sort of a debt, and he had told them that him and I were bringing drugs back to, into Canada to help, um, what's the word, settle the debt. Oh, wow. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I'm just trying to sh- make the short, story as short as possible. Anyway, so I, I don't know this world. I, I just wanted to go home. And of course. so at the, end of the, at the end of the week, you know, after, you know, meeting these people, getting, you know, measured for drugs, like we had to wear this like drug smuggling outfit and... I told him I was going to be really bad at it. I was a terrible liar, but he just wasn't having any of it. And his entire demeanor changed that trip. And I kind of was really mad at myself that, you know, I ignored the the weird red flags before. But then again, I was I was there. So mm-hmm. I just thought the safest way out of this was just going home and, and just trying to do it, you know. And at the airport, I got arrested uh, in, at Pearson because it was pretty obvious that I was not good at this. Um, I pled guilty and was then sentenced to four years in federal prison. So this the court system took about two and a half years and I spent a lot of time being angry, being mad, but I knew that I could prove myself right and prove others wrong because, you know, I just felt so misunderstood. You know, I grew up a great kid. I, I was always volunteering. I always had jobs, lots of family and friends, just like I'd, I would never think of doing anything like that to to benefit like to benefit myself like people thought it was for financial gain that wasn't true mm-hmm. at all um but it was for him i guess he got when we both got investigated they seized all of his accounts because they, they this wasn't his first rodeo yeah 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 so and then me they're just like no they obviously knew that i was just in a, like just there because of the circumstances not mm-hmm. because of planning it or whatever so um anyway so i go to prison and it's in prison where I kind of meet so many other people like me that want to create a second chance at their at, at life and build a second chance at life. But it just became it was just very, very difficult because when you're incarcerated, the world looks at you like you're just this piece of garbage. And that's what they reinforce upon you when you're inside prison. They don't tell you like, oh, what you're good at or anything like that. And food was something that brought people together, actually. So we cooked all of our own food. Um, you know, people shared their stories. And I also realized that one of the main anxieties um, about coming out of prison was, was employment. And, you know, I knew I had this entrepreneurial knack. I really love the creativity and just how 
it connected everyone in prison. And so I was like, maybe I can... Popcorn was a popular prison snack. Here we go. That's where the popcorn comes in. Mm-hmm. It was a popular prison snack. And we would put like different things on it. And so I kind of... One day I just... I just thought like maybe I could start a business where I can... A popcorn company where I can employ other people, including myself, and create a second chance. So that's how it was... Uh, That's how the idea popped, I guess you can say. (laughs) Oh, I love a good food pun. Thank you for finishing with that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So my understanding is that many of the flavors, even some of the ones that are still part of your line, were inspired by the flavors you were developing while you were incarcerated. Yeah. What was it like cooking in a communal kitchen setting in (laughs) a prison like that? (laughs) So where I was, I was housed in a medium facility, medium security, and so what that environment was like was that there was about 17 houses and each house had, you know, 10 to 12 women living in it. And so we had access to like a limited list of grocery items and then also the canteen. And so on the grocery list, um, you know, you could get everything from like chicken, eggs, whatever, and spices. And on the canteen, you could get things like that were more you know, for as a treat, right? Like ice cream and popcorn kernels, you know. Mm. Um, special peanut butter, Nutella, you know, <laughs> chocolate bars, just all that stuff. And so some of the popcorn uh, recipes I used, like came from the spices from the regular grocery list. And then other things, other recipes I would use um, from stuff I would get off canteen, like I would make peanut butter and peanut butter and honey popcorn mm. or peanut butter and jam. I would get uh, macaroni and cheese powder. Uh, from the canteen from the because I could you could buy your own like macaroni and cheese mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I put that on the popcorn so it was just kind of using things that we had in there to to be creative and it was like a blank canvas to make a make, make a consumable painting I guess yeah I mean the sky's the limit really with popcorn yeah yeah now many food companies when they start out create test products mm-hmm. they are able to put them out in the market use focus groups do research to evolve their product given the limitations and challenges of starting your business in prison and not having access to those resources how did you work past that <laughs> so when i was in prison i actually talked to a friend of mine his name is ryan and i'd known him prior to prior to being incarcerated and he he went to business school and stuff like that, and he loved this idea. So we actually started, he he was able to send me market research on, like, food trends. So we would talk over the phone, use snail mail, because I didn't have internet. Oh. So he would, like, research, yeah, food trends, like, recipes, um, like, ingredient trends, things like that, and send them in to me. And then if I could make them in there, that I would kind of work on that. Like, rosemary parm, I think, was one of the flavors, because I was able to get the rosemary spice off the grocery list. And Parmesan cheese, I got also like, then I'd be like, kind of making different recipes that were, you know, trendy in the market. So you really <laughs> wasted no time while you were in there. Absolutely not. I wasn't going to let the time own me. I was going to own the time. That's awesome. Is there one thing about prison you wish people knew that maybe haven't experienced it? Like something you feel like is misunderstood about what it's like in there? Because there's, I think a lot of people absorb their understanding from television or from newspapers. And often that that's mm-hmm. not a true, that's not a true experience of what it's like to live in a space like that. Yeah. I think obviously, you know, television, they sell from drama, right? And so they try to make it as grisly as possible mm-hmm. and the people in there as grisly as possible, which I don't think is fair at all most people I met in there were just 
there because they had to do something to survive or there were so many other like drug meals that I met in there that were just we were just the lowest hanging fruit and thrown into prison like all these first time offenders and meanwhile the ones that are actually organizing it aren't even getting caught Mm. so I think just yeah the stigma of just being horrible horrible people and not knowing what someone went through prior to that um that they're still a person yeah Yeah, I call it like the proximity of forgiveness. It's so easy to hate a stranger for something they did. But if it was like, you you know, your mom or something, if you were walking down, a, if you're doing a prison tour, you know, and then you saw your mom in a jail cell, you'd be like, what the, you know? And, yeah. And, but that would be the one person that you would, that you would forgive because you, you know them and, and it's someone that you love. But it's because it's so easy to hate people that you don't know. It just makes, it's just easier for people. Well, it's really easy to label them and put them in a box. Like like you said, that all criminal, like anyone who's in this space must have all these other associations with them, which is mm-hmm. why it's so difficult mm-hmm. when they're released because those stigmas can often follow. Can you speak a little bit to your own challenges when, when you were released? Like how did you kind of own your story and get past those hurdles that so many people experience after being incarcerated? Yeah, I think the first one was just outing myself, I guess, because I wasn't going to let someone out me. And, you know, you see it every day. It's like, oh, people will use your past or something that you're trying to hide as something to use against you. And I wasn't about to let that happen. And I also knew that I couldn't really help myself if I just kept it inside. You know, it was eating me alive the day that I got arrested, right? Like, I had to spend two and a half years on bail, not talking about what had happened, you know, Mm. driving around being paranoid, um, that someone was coming after me or, you know, just, just feeling like I wasn't myself. And so, um, like I said, I'm a terrible liar, right? So I, I felt like I was just lying to everyone like, when I couldn't talk about what had happened. And so, so, and then by coming out of prison, I was actually able to say, you know, I did, I did mess up and there were circumstances that led to this event, but I still am who I am. And that's, you know, a, a good person and a decent person deserving of, of a second chance at life. And, but also, you know, owning owning the good elements of yourself, but also addressing the things that had led to it, like my substance abuse, right? Like my, I put my family through hell and they didn't, they didn't deserve that. They are innocent victims in that case. And so I wanted to really like make, make them proud again. Yeah. It sounds like, like you said, you owned it Mm -hmm. and you didn't let the shame or the stigma out there take over. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be so hard for a lot of individuals because it can feel like you're going up against a mountain Mm -hmm. sometimes afterwards. I mean, it's, it's really admirable what you've done, Emily, truly. Well, you just got to work at it. It's definitely not, definitely not easy and that they're not instant, you know, it's not like microwave popcorn where it's done in three minutes, right? (laughs) (laughs) So it's, uh, yeah, you gotta, gotta put in work and it's, it, you can, you have to be sad sometimes. You can't just pretend like things don't matter. And I think that was one of the most important things was like allowing myself to be sad and sitting in a sitting in a box. Well, I guess I didn't really do much sitting in prison, but like, you know, actually doesn't sound like it (laughs) being alone and being like, holy shit, like I did. But yeah, and I I also kind of I don't want to say I enjoyed the stigma that I faced coming out, but I saw it as a challenge to overcome. Mm. For example, um, the first (laughs) which has led to a, a better, stronger version of myself and can help other people coming out and also help me build a better business. And so the, some of the things that I dealt with were, you know, coming out of prison and it's like, I really want to get my hair done. And then I told this lady, I was like, just, you know, like, you know, I, cause I want to be transparent. I wanted to, and we had all these mutual connections and she's like, yeah, 
I'm actually I don't feel comfortable with you coming over to my house to get your hair done. Oh. <laughs> and then the dentist, and then I tried to book an appointment at the dentist, and I was like, yeah, I again like. Um, I have, uh, got like a filling in prison and it was really hurting. And then he like overcharged me and wanted me to pay like upfront cause he like, didn't trust me or something. And it was just a ridiculous amount, um, wow. for it, which, which I was like, okay, great. And then I tried to open a, a bank account for the company, for the nature of the company at this, um, credit union. I don't say which one, but they're just like, no, we can't support this type of venture. So this is dead in the water. <laughs> like a, a financial institution when I'm trying to start like a normal business. It's a popcorn company, but because of the, yeah. pardon the pun, but the flavor you were putting on it, they're like, mm-mm. Yeah. Oh, that's such a shame. And then like business insurance, they're like, oh, you want to hire people that came out of prison? We're going to charge you through the roof. <gasps> For business insurance. And then there were also other programs like funding and grant programs that were like, oh, because you have a record, like you're ineligible now. It's like, but the, so there's, there are so many different things, but it also led to like learning and growth and getting around those things. And also being like, like, Hey, if you're like supporting business, like you can't actually look at someone's something that happened that has nothing to do with the business that they're starting now. Mm-hmm. So just like... It- Honestly, that realization kind of makes me a little angry because it's <laughs> like, yes, you know, maybe you made a mistake. Maybe you made a poor choice. And there are people out there that, yes, are going to repeat and do again, but that is not yeah. every person that's coming out. And how are they supposed to get on their feet and build a better life for themselves if you're immediately assuming they are doomed to continue to make bad choices? And that's why there's so much... It's so cyclical, Right. Um, you can't get a job and then you just, you, people won't give you a chance. And so you go back to whatever it is, or you can't get into like a rehab facility, you know what I mean? And so there's, yeah, it's unfortunately very, very cyclical. Yeah. I mean, if this is a game of monopoly, it's like you went to jail and now you're not allowed to go around the board anymore. Yeah. It's like, sorry, you're out of the game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean you're having trouble? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> In many of your stories, there's themes of acceptance, creativity that come up a lot. Would you say acceptance and adapting to your situation or the innovation and creativity have been a bigger impact on your personal life and your business? I know that's a heavy question. Okay. So do I have to choose one or the other? <laughs> is there one that you feel more strongly or is it like the the two of them have like been integral together? I think they're, they're, they're both in the same bucket. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and you have to fill it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people struggle with accepting their situations sometimes. I didn't at first. I was f- furious. I was mm-hmm. furious at him. I was furious at myself. I was furious at people for looking at me like I was, I plotted this and I, you know, was doing it all along. Like people looked at my past travels where I'd volunteered and assumed that I was smuggling drugs the whole time. And so they assume because of that one mistake that there must have been this huge pattern yeah. in the past. There's no way you could have just slipped up. Just discrediting me for like every single thing that I did because I like to help people. Wow. So yeah, it was like really really irked me. <laughs> really pissed me off actually. Of course it would. <laughs> uh, so many people in the entrepreneur field talk about <laughs> profits, mm-hmm. but you talk a lot about emotional profit. Mm-hmm. What is emotional profit? Emotional profit is money for the soul. And this was something that I found in the very beginning um, of doing work that mattered. And because I had this lived experience, it I was able to see that, you know, it wasn't just me that felt misunderstood. It was so many, it was so many other people. And as human beings, like we all have this 
innate, I don't say innate, but like when we can serve others other than ourselves, it, it makes us feel fulfilled. Like the, it, it just, when we can see changes made, like whether it's in an institution or community or in a way of life, um, it makes us feel like not only like, are we doing something that matters, but also that, um, that we're building something that can help other people and in so many different ways. And so with popcorn, yes, we, the popcorn is kind of like the vector to the bigger mission. And that is reducing the stigma of, of those that have been incarcerated, finding employment. Um, but I found that, that my story has actually been related to so many different people in so many different ways. And so whether it's like, you know, talking on a podcast like this or, you know, um, doing an interview or leading a workshop um, or calling someone that just, you know, reading the email from someone that just got out of prison saying they read my story and, you know, they found it inspiring, helping someone get a job. Like those are kind of the things, those are the things that lead to emotional profit, which makes you feel like you're actually, you're building wealth internally. And then once you the more that you build that wealth, the more they, that you can distribute it, and which then helps you build a better business. Oh, that's such a beautiful message. <laughs> and I think an important one, because I think a lot of people in a consumer environment get really hung up on, you know, I've got to make a lot of money, even if it's at the expense of something I don't actually enjoy doing. But you're not only building something that's successful from a monetary perspective, but also something that is going to leave an impact on people in such a much more profound way. Like you said, people are hearing your story and it's mattering to them. You are connecting people. You're, you're helping people with second chances, Mm -hmm. which unfortunately it, it feels, it sounds like there needs to be more of that. Yeah. And like, it's everyone messes up in life. Not just, you don't have to go to prison to, to realize that. Right. Um, yeah, we have a real culture that struggles with forgiving people. We're very good at throwing people into the town hall and shaming them, Yeah, but often forgiving people and giving them a second chance to learn and to redo, like even just outside of prison, especially with social media, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a real struggle to be like, okay, he messed up. Maybe we, he's trying better, but we, again, like you said, people go into the past and go, well, they, because of that one thing, they must mm-hmm. be a terrible person from the very beginning. Yeah. 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 And that really does need to change. Uh, so what's next for you and your popcorn enterprise? Well, I think this year, um, so we have a number of different distributors, um, but our main distributor is, uh, it's called John, Luke and Neil. Mm-hmm. And so the Neil brothers have been great. They have like the chip line, the snack line, but they also distribute. So they're like our first major distributor. And they just partnered, they had central um, Canada to eastern Canada. And so they partnered with one called John Luca, which is all out west. And so now we basically, it opened up the entire western corridor for distribution, which is awesome. That's so exciting. Congratulations. Yeah. And then we're also like planning our inroads into the the U.S. But I'm not someone that is like obsessed with like massive growth, right? Because I've just seen so many people crash and burn by doing that. And Mm -hmm. then you lose sense of, again, like what are you actually here to do? And so, yeah, like I'm, I'm really enjoying the journey and the ride and meet so many different people. It's, you know, I, I, I did like a speaking tour with a bank, like for farmers, like, yeah. So it's just really interesting to see how this, how the theme kind of is, is actually more, more universal than I thought. When you started out this popcorn company, did you ever envision that you would become, uh, such a well-received public speaker? 
that people would resonate so hard because it seems like a lot of people want to have you come talk for them (laughs) honestly I knew that I was a good storyteller and I knew that I was I'm very blunt very honest and that I find humor in things Mm -hmm. and so that's I think that's why it is it is the way that it is right now because like that's what people need to hear it's not can't be like oh woe is me oh like this like the world's terrible it's like no like you have to find laughter and joy in things even even the, the worst times stuff. of your life. Yeah. 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 <laughs> now, we have a tradition on the podcast. Uh, since it's a foodie podcast, when we're having a good meal, if there's anything left over, we obviously want to take it with us. So if there's one thing you hope that people take away from this discussion today, what would it be? I think that hmm, one thing. So popcorn kernels are like people, right? We're all born we all we're all born kind of looking the same like little little blobs right little blobs of goo and what except popcorn kernels they don't goo on them but we they all pop differently every single popcorn kernel pops differently but if you put it in too high heat if you put it out in the cold if you don't put on any heat at all it's not going to pop or it's going to pop and not be consumable or not be ideal right so that's kind of like what happens to certain people if depending on the environment that you're in it can impact how you how you pop as a person and so yeah just i think i think if you think of the world like that it's all about your environment because i don't believe anyone's born born bad what a fantastic analogy using (laughs) popcorn my goodness you are good at the food uh food analogies (laughs) (laughs) you and i are we're definitely uh the same kind of people Emily, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure having you here. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Everyone, be sure to check out Comeback Snacks. They're available, I guess, across Canada now. Yeah, we're in about like almost 800 stores fantastic yeah and but they can all be found on on our website or just check us out on social and i can help you uh, help you find the closest one yes details for uh her website and social media are in uh the notes of this podcast episode mm-hmm. thank you so much for listening everyone <laughs> take care of yourselves eat good food we will be back next week uh, with another podcast episode take care and we will see you soon Sensible Foodie is written and produced by Kate Park. Theme music composed and performed by Robert Lash. The Sensible Foodie is a platform for sharing information and a celebration and love of food and is not intended as medical advice. If you have health concerns, be sure to talk to your healthcare team.